Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. Were there any lingering thoughts about the second paragraph of the Shema that maybe we cut off that people didn't get a chance to express last time? Group reward and punishment, the reins, I'm taking, I'm bringing it all back to you. It's still all relevant since we just started praying for rain on Shemini Atzeret. I think this is, I don't know, maybe sort of a trivial question, but we, we all know, and you pointed out that the, um, in the second paragraph, some of, the, um, some of the verbs are plural and some are not. Um, most of them are plural. So I'm wondering right. if you have any thoughts about, you know, whether there's a, a reason, you know, uh, an underlying reason why the ones that are singular are singular, why those are the exceptions. Um, the, yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. As far as I can tell, the only ones that are singular is Beshif mm-hmm. I think that's the only ones that are singular, um, which makes it sound as if it is a line directly lifted from the first paragraph of the Shema, which is an earlier uh, passage in Sefer Dvarim and Deuteronomy. Right. Um, I don't know. You could make up a midrash about that. You know, it's still the individual. It's this is what we're saying this to the group, but it's still dependent on every individual, uh, you know, doing these things when they lie down and when they rise up and, uh, yeah. and, and in your homes and in your gates. It's a commandment to the, that's a nice midrash. It's a commandment to the whole and the punish, the reward of the punishment are going to be to the whole people, but it's still dependent on every single individual doing their duty. How about that, Ilana? Sure. <laughs> that's a nice sermon. Okay. Yeah, the, the, relation, the relationship of the one to the whole. Because the individual to the community, it's incumbent on the whole community, but if every individual doesn't do their part, then this won't work. Uh, Vered? Also, in the third line, there are some verbs in single form. Natati. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. You're correct. Thank you. Right. Mm -hmm. So, again, you know, this is going to befall every single individual. Don't think you're going to escape. Which is a segue to what I wanted to share. I was reading a passage in the Zohar from, I'll get back to you, Larry. Sorry. Passage in the Zohar for Parshat Noach. I have to give a little bit, a little bit of backstory to this. So the passage talks about uh, the opening of the Parsha, not this week, but next week. Noach ish tzadik tamim hayabedorotav. He was a righteous man in his generation, and you're probably familiar with the argument about what does that mean. He was righteous in his generation. So the interpreters debate. Some say what that means is well. For his generation, which was totally wicked, he was righteous. But had he been in a righteous generation like Abraham's generation, then he would have been no big deal. The other opinion being, it means, no, he was, he managed to be righteous even in his awful generation. And had he been in a greater generation like Abraham's generation, he would have been even more righteous. Okay. So two different interpretations going in two different directions uh, about, um, you know, is this a knock on Noah or is it a praise of Noah? And then the Zohar goes on to talk about 
well, if Noah was such a tzaddik, why couldn't he save his generation? For example, the Zohar says, when um, God wanted to destroy all of B'nai Israel because of the sin of the golden calf and said to Moses, I'm going to save you alone. We'll start out from fresh. I'll make you into a whole new nation and we'll just, I'll just kill the rest of them. Moses, who could have been saved, like Noah was saved, chooses to argue with God and says, forget it. If you're going to, if you're going to kill them, then take me also. the, The deal is off, right? Why didn't Noah say that? Why didn't Noah? And by the way, and then, and then Moshe, of course, we know is able to win God's submission and get God to forgive B'nai Israel. So, for example, why didn't Noah say, forget it, I'm not going to the ark. You can take me also or spare everyone. Why didn't he do what Moses did? So the answer to that is because Moshe, if you remember that passage, which we read on fast days near the end of Exodus, we just read it on Tzom Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia, the day after Rosh Hashanah. Moshe says, Zechor la'avraham li'itzchak Israel avadecha. Remember, so Moses brings up the merit of the ancestors um, to say to God, don't kill them. Remember what you promised to the ancestors. And Noah has no such righteous ancestors to call upon, whose merit he can call upon. So therefore, Noah couldn't have pulled that trick. Okay. How about Abraham, who argued with God about Sodom and Gomorrah? Right. Well, Abraham realized, the Zohar says, that the minimum standard for righteousness for saving the whole group was how many people? Ten. Ten. And the Zohar says, and there was Noah and his three sons and their wives. And that didn't make ten. It made eight. It was very interesting to me, by the way, that the passage actually mentioned the wives, because in our patriarchal tradition, the, you know, the wives are usually ignored, right? So that would have been only eight and not 10. So Noah knew that he wouldn't be, he couldn't pull the, the gambit. I said trick, but that's not what I meant. The gambit that um, Abraham did in arguing on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, because he knew he didn't have a full minion of righteous people. He only had eight, so he wouldn't have been able to save the generation. So there's nothing Noah could do to save the generation. That is why he went into the ark. All of this is just Backstory to the point that I want to get to that I found interesting. Um, and it says that God commands Noah to go into the ark because the flood is going to start and that Noah essentially has to hide in the ark. Otherwise, he is going to die. His righteousness will not save him unless he is protected within the ark. Um, And then the Zohar quotes a passage from the Talmud, which says, because when there is a plague in the land, it sweeps away the wicked and the righteous alike. Meaning when there is something that is perceived as not perceived, something that is a communal or group disaster. um, And I think what, Vayim Shamoa is talking about would fall under this category, right? So whether it's the climate, which seems pretty relevant, or the plague, which seems pretty relevant, okay? 
the Talmud says, once Hashem unleashes, unleashes the mashchit, the destroyer, then it sweeps away everything in its path. And it doesn't matter if you were righteous or not. Meaning there are certain sorts of disasters that when they befall humanity, although, again, befalling is taking it out of God's hands. Vahayim Shemar would say, once God sends it, then the fact that you were righteous doesn't save you and means nothing. So this really brings home that the idea of reward and punishment in this second paragraph of the Shema is really about the group and not about the individual. Even the righteous individual can suffer the same fate when the destroyer is unleashed. And then the Zohar cites another passage in the Torah where you have to be protected or the destroyer is going to get you. Can anyone think of what that passage is? What other passage where God says you're going to need to hide if you want to survive? I'll give you a hint. It's in the second book of the Bible. I'll give you another hint. Pesach. Pesach. When, Meyer? Meyer got uh, that a second hint. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for the hint. No, good. Uh, when the uh, Malachamaga comes over to the house and you have to put the, uh, the blood right. on your door. Right. The, 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 the slaying of the firstborn, right? It says, Ish lo mi petach beto ad boker. Every person has to stay in their house until morning. Meaning, once the destroyer is unleashed, which, of course, because I'm of a certain age, I envision it to be, tell me if anyone, raise your hand if you envision it to be this way also, curly green smoke snaking through the, the, the land of Egypt from the movie The Ten Commandments. So that's how I imagine the Malachamavet. It's the wisps of green smoke, right, wafting through the camp. So Hashem says, you got to mark your doorpost and you must stay indoors all night. Meaning if there are innocent Israelites who go out of their houses, they're going to be killed also by the Malach HaMavet, or at least their firstborn anyway, right? So once God unleashes the Mashchit, the destroyer, and again, I think this is sort of a way of understanding, I bring all this up because I think it's a way of understanding the doctrine of consequences of the Hayaim Shamoa, which basically says this has nothing to do with the idea of reward or punishment for the individual. Okay? There are certain kinds of uh Vayim Shema would call them natural, what we call natural catastrophes, weather, plague. I mean, these are things, again, that we're totally living with today, okay? That once the mashchit, once the destroyer is abroad in the land, once God, I'm, I'm going to put this part in quotes, because this is the part that I, where I'm not a concrete literalist, okay? So I'm going to put it in air quotes. Once God releases the destroyer, okay, which is to say, once the consequence is coming, then it comes to righteous and wicked alike, right? Just because you're a a good person doesn't mean you'll be immune to coronavirus. And just because you're a good person doesn't mean 
your house isn't going to burn down in the forest fires or you're not, your house isn't going to be destroyed in the hurricanes in the Southeast, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. There's certain kinds of disasters, which Vayam Shamal refers to as punishments. Okay. That sweep away everyone in their path. And this is where the doctrine of individual goodness and individual reward and punishment is irrelevant. Okay. Noah would have drowned in the flood had he not hidden, hidden in the ark. B'nai Israel would have been, uh, firstborn would have been, might have been killed had they strayed out of their house. Right. The punishment, once it's a group consequence, takes everyone. Sorry, that's pretty dark. <laughs> but I just wanted to share that. Again, I thought that that passage in the Zohar is kind of a nice amplification of this. And again, it goes back to, the, by the way, the saying in the Talmud is, when the plague is abroad, don't walk in the middle of the road. That's the, that's the quote, right? which sort of means stay home, wear your mask, and uh, protect yourself, right? Because they, they had an awareness that there were certain things, such as plagues, right? Or in the Talmud when it's talking about it, or such as drought and famine in the second paragraph of the Shema Deuteronomy. It was clearly aware to them that, that there are certain things that happen where uh, this, this affects everyone. It has nothing to do with whether you were a good person or not. You as an individual were a good person or not. Ilana. Oh, sorry. Um, Larry had his hand up, then Ilana. Uh, I was just going back to your invitation for other comments about yep. the paragraph. I'll be very brief. Uh, you, I think we mentioned this a little bit. It's been taken on by Jewish environmental groups as a, um, as a call to environmentalism. Yep. Um, it's the, the paragraph is in Parshat Ekev, as we said, um, a year and a half ago, or maybe almost two, but yeah, can't remember the date. I gave a Devar Torah on the library minion about that. Um, there's a prayer by Arthur Waskow called mm-hmm. A Prayer in Time of Planetary Danger, which is a adaptation of that entire paragraph. Um, if anybody wants to see it, I'll be happy to send it to them by, by email. Great. Send Larry an email. Larry Jerusalem at gmail.com. Is that it? Larry Jerusalem? No numbers? You got it. Send him an email, LarryJerusalem at gmail.com. Thank you. Ilana. So if we wanted to send you a letter and you were in Jerusalem, we could just say, Larry, Jerusalem. And the post and the post person would know exactly where yeah, to send it. Sort of like it. Santa yeah. Claus, North Pole. Exactly. Sorry, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so my, my <laughs> point, um, I think, maybe connects with what Larry um, was getting at. I'm yeah. saying without having any idea what he said in his dvar. Um but the wording um, that uh, of talking about these disasters as God has unleashed such and such disaster, well, you know, I I have trouble these days with the expression natural disaster. Even, I mean, is it is it partly? Is it even at all? You know. So then, I mean, I think then we get into sort of the idea of where. Yes, it affects good, bad, everyone equally, but how does it come about? Is it a, a, a failure of collective responsibility? And so there you get back into that 
that notion that we've been talking about. Yes. You, you're saying it as a question. I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah. Because you're, I, you're, ask, you're raising a feel, you know, kind of a yeah. question of how I, it I, happens. I, and part of that is about theology and what your theology partly. is, right? But, but don't you think, it, I mean, I think it's partly because, um, because of our understanding of what's happening in the world, in part at least, to human um human actions, human neglect, or even abuse, in my view, of God's creation, that some of these natural disasters are made much worse, and in some cases, maybe even um, brought about um, that way. So I don't don't think of it as just um, theological, but maybe that's because I'm not... Well, well, sorry, it is theological in the the sense of if you want to ask the question, where is God in this? So oh, okay. again, in the Bible, let's let us be candid. In Deuteronomy's theology, okay, in Deuteronomy's theology, as expressed in this passage, um, again, I, I don't want to lose the shot. Yeah, I want we, we people of we're people of faith. Faith. One definition of faith is how you live with tradition. But I want to be honest about kind of the origin tradition in the sense that this, the, the doctrine in this paragraph clearly is it's because you strayed after other gods. And so God will be angry and send you this punishment. So the human involvement is because you strayed after your eyes and led you to worship other gods. Okay. Now, hold on, Larry. Hold on, Larry. Now we can interpret that as you can interpret that broadly, right? Like the other gods of, uh, I don't know, strip mining and fracking and overbuilding and uh, not repairing the levees and all manner of... Or very broadly speaking, the god of self. Okay, the god of self, all sorts of other things. Uh, And I'm not saying that that's incorrect. I'm just saying, I'm not, I, I don't think that's what... Yeah the author of Dvarim exactly had in mind. Yes. But because of this, I'll come to you in a second, Larry, because of this, I just want to come to a point that I made near the beginning of talking about this paragraph, which is there are more liberal Jewish traditions, like in the reform prayer book or reconstructionist, which reform, which eliminates it reconstructionist, which provides alternatives, which says, well, we don't want to say this paragraph because we don't believe in this anymore. That's the idea behind it. And I actually think, oh, there are certainly ways of understanding this paragraph that make it pretty close to compatible with all sorts of contemporary views that are dis- that are uh, discussing, that we're discussing. They're kind of expansive, midrashic views of this doctrine that allow me, for one, right, to say, oh, I don't feel any need to swap out this paragraph of the Shema for some other alternative. In mm-hmm. fact, Adarabah, the opposite, the opposite, in our times of plague and uh, climate change, um, I find it particularly apt and relevant. Right. I think it can speak to us very, very incisively. So I, I don't see the need of like, oh, this is a backward doctrine of all the punishments come from God. And 
we don't believe we don't believe that anymore. And so we don't want to say this is part of our Shema. Right. This was dropped by the reform movement in the 1800s, as far as I know. Right. As part of the Shema. By the way, I don't know that for a fact. I know it's not in the contemporary reform Sidur, and I, 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 I don't honestly know when it was dropped. So I, I, that mm. was, I, just, I just blew that out of my rear, that fact. <laughs> I don't quite know when it was dropped. We can look that up. Okay, Larry. I, I, I want to support you entirely, but I only want to mention that uh, it's because of the penury of English. We don't read these first two paragraphs right. The first, the first paragraph is you, you, you individual. You've yep. said and the second paragraph, you have to read it. However, you interpret it as y'all. Yes. Collective. So, right. So think about the collectivity, however, in whatever direction you go. Yeah. Good. Thank you. So I want to summarize it then uh, uh, as second paragraph of the shop means if y'all don't follow the right path, disaster will ensue for y'all. Okay. So if I, if you said to me, what does the second paragraph of the Shema mean? Say it in one sentence. In one sentence, it means God is saying, I have told you what the good path is. And if you all don't follow it, there will be calamitous consequences for you as a group. Uh, footnote from the Talmud and the Zohar, where it won't matter how good an individual you were, that won't protect you. Meyer. I just want to actually reiterate something you said before, which I really liked. And um, I'm going to read from uh, Akev that comes right before by Haim Shema Jishmu. In Thank you, Meyer. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, for the land to which you come to possess it, it is not like the land of Egypt that you left, where you would plant your seed and water it on foot like a vegetable garden. But the land to which you cross over to possess it is a land of mountains and valleys. From the rain of heaven, it drinks water. A land that Hashem your God seeks out, the eyes of Hashem your God, are always upon it from the beginning of the year to year's end. And then Bayayim Shemoah. The point being, I think that it's it's a call to action, I think, as much as anything else also. It's not just a call to belief in the yeah. sense that if we don't take the action that's required right. to sow the crops, to be aware of the fact that the water's not just going to be there, and we do it in a responsible way, I would add, sort of a modern sort of interpretation of this, yeah. then then disaster, disaster will befall us. So I right. do think that, and this is, again, following something you had suggested weeks ago, that there is our hand in here, which is also why I think Bahia'i Shema is speaking, spoken to us communally and not just individually. Good. Thank you. Right. And what I said at the beginning of this about that surrounding passage is Moshe saying, hey, back in Egypt, the crops grow every year because of this process, which seems to be automatic, which Larry has informed me does not have anything to do with the snows of Kilimanjaro, which are nowhere near the sources of the Nile, but rather rain in the mountains down in Sudan and Ethiopia, right? Um, which again, which Moshe probably didn't know about. So he's saying, look, in Egypt, the Nile just, I'm going to put it in quotes, magically, automatically rises every year. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is you have to dig canals a mile or two out from the Nile so that the water can spread out and water things. Okay. It seems automatic, right? Um, which, of course, we know 
It actually wasn't, all right? It's still dependent on rains, but it seemed automatic. We're going to go to a place where actually our whole subsistence and existence depends on changes that can happen from year to year. And if things don't go well, we'll starve and die. And he is saying this is based on what's going to happen is going to based on how we fulfill our communable communal responsibilities as laid out for us by God. Marshall. Uh, where Ilana used the term natural disasters, I want to take the word, take the word natural, make, not make it an adjective, but make it a noun of nature. Because I think of natural versus unnatural. So I say that uh, disasters occur in nature. And as a result of that, what is our responsibility towards that? And maybe that's responsibilities. How do I respond to, to such? Okay, good. Thank you. Un, we should say we should change it to say unnatural disasters of nature, perhaps. Yeah. Sometimes unnatural disasters of nature. Yeah. Uh, other thoughts on this? This is good. I feel like we've squeezed a lot of meaning out of the second paragraph of the Shema. Okay. Given the time, I think it would be prudent not to start the third paragraph. And we're going to take off next week for Rosh Chodesh and my trip to San Diego. Um, and then we will resume uh, the week after. And I think we're, we're really, really done with the second paragraph of the Shema. We will start with uh, the third paragraph of the Shema two weeks from today. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.